0: You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. The spine is the third most common site for metastases in patients with systemic cancer. But proton therapy may help these patients by offering precise targeting and reduced toxicity. Joining us to discuss the role of proton therapy for primary bone cancer and spinal metastases is Dr. Michelle Alonzo Basanta, the Helene Blum Assistant Professor in the Department of Radiation Oncology at Penn Medicine. Welcome to our show, Dr. Alonzo Basanta.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Perhaps we
0: could start by just talking about the current treatment regimens available for primary bone cancers and, and also for bone metastases
1: the primary management at this point still stands to be surgery, if at all possible, for each patient. Of course, as a patient comes in and is evaluated, there is a multidisciplinary team that takes place and meets, decides what the next option would be, and most will will be offered surgery first. Most commonly, however, for a lot of the primary bone tumors, radiation has played a role in the adjuvant setting, primarily in those tumors that are not deemed as a gross total resection. So in other words, there's still some residual disease left behind. This, as you can imagine, is difficult to do with our conventional treatment only because we have a very critical structure there, which is, of course, the spinal cord. So primarily, these patients will have surgery, and then based on what the surgeon finds at the time of surgery, as well as any imaging done afterwards, will refer the patient to our department for consideration of radiation therapy. Most of the primary bone tumors require relatively high doses for control, for local control, which, as I said, is difficult to do with conventional treatment, which is why proton therapy or particle beam therapy has become so important.
0: And I imagine the uh, bone marrow has to be one of the limiting toxicities. Is that where you tend to see fallout from conventional radiation therapy?
1: It's bone marrow, but in addition to that, it's the exit dose of our conventional beam. Most of these, as a conventional beam enters the body, it has to exit anteriorly. So a lot of the structures anterior to our target, such as your small bowel, your stomach, your kidneys, end up receiving some dose that is not necessarily our target, Our primary limiting factor, however, is usually the the spinal cord itself. With conventional treatment, it reaches a certain limit. We we know its tolerance to a certain limit. However, most of these bone tumors require much higher than that dose for adequate control.
0: And you get a, a radiation myelitis?
1: You do. You can get radiation myelitis. It's not as common, and most of us in our profession or respect the spinal cord tremendously. The documented cases are low and sometimes even below the tolerance dose, suggesting other factors that obviously contribute to the myelitis. But given that risk, and it's such a devastating risk, we respect it as the number one goal usually for when we do our planning.
0: I'm an an internist, so I take care of mostly adults. Am I wrong in thinking primary bone tumors are much more common in children, whereas metastatic disease to the spine may be more common with adult cancers?
1: That's true. And in, in the pediatric population, it's where protons have become very commonly used. And actually, most children, if we do see them, will refer them to proton centers, one of which we will become soon. And that is... One of the major reasons is because of the anterior dose and including, as you said, the bone marrow. They do get the primary bone lesions, although these are also found in adults as well. You're right to assume that most of the spine disease we deal with in adults is from metastatic disease, which is as we get better with our biologics and our chemotherapeutic options, patients are living longer and we're having to deal with more further sites of disease than the primary disease itself.
0: And am I right in understanding that proton therapy can deliver a dose of radiation that stops at the site of the tumor and, and doesn't have that exit path that you were talking about?
1: That is correct. And that's one of the greatest benefits where we can try to, to deliver more of the dose that is needed to control the tumor, whereas also respecting that spinal cord that is, in most cases, within millimeters of our dose. Of our tumor.
0: And are there differences in how this is applied to children versus adult patients?
1: Not necessarily in the sense for children. We have found it most beneficial. A lot of the children we treat in the spine usually is primary brain tumors that have a predisposition to feed the, the spinal fluid. And in those patients, it's when we have found that using proton therapy has been of, of most benefit. Obviously, we would treat just the spinal canal itself and not necessarily anything anterior to it. And so in those patients, most of these children are below the age of 8 and still growing. So that's a concern as well to try to preserve as much of bone height as possible.
0: And and is that a a prophylactic treatment that is being given?
1: Well, it depends. If they have seeding already, then it's definitive. If, If they do not, then it's prophylactic, yes. It's part of the standard protocol or standard treatment of these tumors.
0: And do we tend to see a a rapid response in certain uh, situations. I'm thinking of prostate metastases to the spine and you start to get the cord compression. Can we get somebody quickly in for proton therapy and relieve that pressure?
1: Well, usually what if there is a case such as that and it's more emergent, we always prefer the surgical option first. Most cases, even when there is an immediate cord compression such as that and surgery is the option, that's what we opt for first because it's the most immediate way of relieving that pressure those patients will eventually still need radiation therapy. And the benefit primarily will come in those patients that have had prior radiation therapy, that have had prior surgery in that same location and yet the disease has come back. That's where we're looking into the thought that protons will be of benefit in those locations because the cord in that sense has received the dose that it's can tolerate. And so that's where the benefit, I think, with protons will, will come in. I think for those newly diagnosed, we would still consider surgery and then a more focal conventional treatment and reserve our protons for those cases where they may recur. Not to say that as we get moving along and, and get answers to a lot of our questions, we may think about doing protons in a more immediate setting.
0: Very interesting. And I've often heard the adage, sometimes in the central nervous system, it doesn't matter if a tumor is malignant or benign, it's the location. Is proton therapy ever used for benign lesions?
1: It can be used for benign lesions and we're we're looking into doing that as well. As mentioned previously by my chairman, most of our patients will be on, on a study or protocol to be able to examine these questions. And we're looking to look into patients that have benign tumors of the spine and treating them with radiation therapy, particularly those patients that cannot undergo surgery, where this would be their primary treatment. And as I said, most commonly, we can deliver a higher dose or the dose needed for control with protons. So this is something we're going to be looking into as well.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me discussing the role of proton therapy for primary bone cancer and spinal metastases is Dr. Michelle Alonzo Basanta, the Helene Blum Assistant Professor in the Department of Radiation Oncology at Penn Medicine. Dr. Alonzo Basanta, there's a multidisciplinary team that's involved with treating these patients. What does that mean? What advantages does that bring to the table?
1: I'd like to think that with any cancer treatment, you would want a multidisciplinary team. And that's usually composed, and it is here at the University of Pennsylvania, by part of neurosurgeons, which form obviously a big part of the team, as well as radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, and in addition to that, we invite our pathologist, our radiologist, neuroradiologist to be part of that team. In addition, we have good support system with social work as well as uh, nutrition, kind of all the social services you would need for patients that would be coming to our center. So a good monthly disciplinary team would include those components to be able to basically choose the appropriate treatment for each patient that presents.
0: That is so important that you have all the appropriate medical people, but then some of the non-medical people to give the support and, and the practical things that a patient would need to undergo complete therapy. And you do have that at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: Absolutely. We found that for most of our patients, and even for me as a physician personally, it has been instrumental having them around and knowing about the patient in advance. It has helped introduce the patient to what radiation is and the whole process, as well as get them through it.
0: Now, is there a role for so-called biologics?
1: That's the hope and the interest is that we can combine the current work that's being done in research labs pretty much across the country and combine it with protons, with focal therapy to induce a more systemic response. We know from just traditional radiation that radiation is local therapy, it's wherever we target it in a sense, proton therapy is even more so of a focal treatment. And so if the patient has other sites of disease, the goal is that this bio, future biologics will be able to take care of those in combination with radiation, and that's something that we'll be studying here as well.
0: And are these things like monoclonal antibody-based therapies or more traditional chemotherapies?
1: Some are monoclonal antibody-based. Some are more traditional. There is work being done in our current labs looking at even antivirals in combination with radiation therapy, and we're hoping to incorporate that with our proton therapy as well.
0: And, And we've talked a little bit about fractionation and dose escalation with radiation therapy. Are there particular things about proton therapy for the spine that we should know about with these concepts?
1: Well, there's always the movement now has been with better imaging techniques, more focal, able of targeting imaging to be able to immobilize a patient even better, that we can now treat higher doses per treatment in less time, in less treatment fractions. And so the hope is that we would be able to do the same with protons where we're talking about a very focal treatment, incorporate that into a very solid, unique immobilization apparatus where we can be very sure of where the tumor in the patient is present at all times and combine the two to really treat a higher dose per treatment in less time. It has been done using other technologies, and we're just hoping to incorporate protons into those technologies.
0: Very interesting, and and the the practicality of it for the patient. These are patients who have metastases, may be uncomfortable. Do they have to? I imagine they have to be very still, as you were saying. And how long do they hold still? How many treatments do they get in a course?
1: It varies by site and what the histology is as well, actually. And they do have to be still. We usually try to, primary goal is to always make them comfortable on the table. Radiation treatments may vary. Proton therapy may take a slightly bit longer than our conventional, and mostly it's our immobilization, making sure they're in the right position before we even get started. Most of our patients and most of my patients, as I talk to them about treatments, will be that we want to make sure your pain is under control during that time, so we will work with them even prior to treatment to make sure that that's in place so that they can be comfortable on the machine. It doesn't feel like your bed at home, but it is a firm surface, and so that we want to be sure that they're adequately controlled before they get on the table.
0: That's a very good point, and I imagine that makes the treatment go much more easily
1: It takes a little bit less of a worry from the physician as well as the patients on the table. The last thing I would want to do is cause them more pain as they're getting their treatment, and so we want to be sure that they're adequately controlled. And we also mentioned to them that the treatment will be a little longer so that mentally they know that this is not going to be a 1, 2, 3.
0: Now, I think of the area around the spine, and we've got the bones and the the nerve tissue so close together. Is there much of an inflammatory response after proton therapy? Do you need to give these patients corticosteroids? How does that play out?
1: The effect of protons on inflammation will probably be very much the same as we see now with conventional treatment. As mentioned previously, the biological effectiveness of protons is very similar to our conventional photons. So in cases, usually I consider adding on corticosteroids in patients that have gross disease present that is abutting the spinal cord that any bit of swelling may cause some symptoms. So in those patients, I may prophylactically give them some steroids Otherwise, we usually follow them very closely, obviously, and if they start to have any symptoms, we may place them on steroids at that time. If they've had surgery and there's no evidence of tumor, there is adequate room around the spinal cord, I do not necessarily give those patients corticosteroids up front.
0: And this seems like such a wonderful step forward in treatment, but I know that there are only a handful of centers, at least in the United States. What's limiting the development? Is it cost? Is it special equipment? Why don't we see more of proton centers around the country?
1: That's a good question. Actually, it's, it's a bit of everything that you said. It is a bit of cost. It does cost a lot of money to open up a proton center. And likely, as more centers open, this cost may go down. However, it's also a lot of planning and a lot of work. In addition to that, the data, which is why we're so intent on having most of our patients on study, The data is, although very good from the centers that have been open, there hasn't been really a prospective trial looking at these patients and following them long-term. And so patients and physicians alike are a little nebulous as to, should we go ahead with this, should we not? It's a big cost. We don't know what the actual outcomes are. And that's why I'm thrilled and happy that we actually will have a lot of studies and protocols open for patients, that we will be able to follow them in the long-term
0: Well, I very much want to thank Dr. Michelle Alonzo Basanta from Penn Medicine. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.